you, Jerry. Today we are moving to King Jehoshaphat, also known as Jehoshaphat, also known as Jehoshaphat, in our study of the kings of Israel and Judah. And the reason we're studying the kings of Israel and Judah is because we recognize that they were in this special relationship where they had this one job really under a microscope of ruling on God's behalf. And in reality, every one of us has to do the same thing, just not in ways that are so obvious. But everything God has given us, every resource he's given us, every opportunity he's given us, every relationship he has given us, is entrusted to us to use according to God's will. And so our, our kingdoms, our responsibilities may not have borders or armies or any of that kind of stuff, but we have the same kind of relationship, the same kind of expectation with God that these kings did. And so we're learning by their example. Last week, we looked at everybody's favorite king of Judah, Asa, and today we are looking at Jehoshaphat. And this sermon did not go the way I was expecting it to. It really didn't. Because, you know, you plan out a series and you haven't researched all of the passages yet. And I really expected to talk a lot about the leap of faith this week. But it turns out I scoured my commentaries. I can't find any record that Jehoshaphat did any more jumping than any other king. So I don't know where he got that, that, re- that reputation as a jumper. I thought it was funny. He, is, he was not, biblically speaking, a, a, uh, you know, a jumper. He was just, he jumped no more than any other king. Probably no less. But uh, in reality, Jehoshaphat has a very important story because based on the amount of text he is given in the book of Chronicles, he is probably, we should expect to find, the best king of Judah. The most successful in defining success by what God expects of a king. And so this is a case, in the past, we've been looking at the major mistakes that kings have made. Today, we're going to get to see a major success in the story of King Jehoshaphat. So first, let's give ourselves a little bit of context. Uh, So Rehoboam, on the, the gold line, that's Judah. Rehoboam is the son of Solomon, and his son, Abijah, and then his son, Asa, that we talked about last week, and then Jehoshaphat inherited the, the crown from him. Notice a nice straight line, easy succession in the line of David. Uh, Israel's had a harder go of it. The northern kingdom is in red. You'll notice they've had a lot more kings because they've had a lot more assassinations. Um, but they finally reached some stability when Omri assassinated Zimri, who had assassinated Elah, and Omri didn't get assassinated. He held on and was able to actually give the kingdom, the northern kingdom of Israel to his son Ahab, and Ahab, because they, had, uh, they, did, they went for a while without an assassination, they were actually able to build up Israel, to the northern kingdom, to the strongest it's been in its history. And so, if you remember, there was a lot of animosity between these two kingdoms. So Jehoshaphat is taking the throne during a time when he has a major threat immediately on his northern border. And so that's going to be the first thing that he has to deal with. So it tells us, Azza's son Jehoshaphat became king in his place and strengthened himself against Israel. He stationed troops in every fortified city of Judah and set garrisons in the land of Judah and in the cities of Ephraim that his father Azza had captured. 
Now the Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he walked in the former ways of his father, David. He did not seek the Baals, but sought the God of his father and walked by his commands, not according to the practices of Israel. So the Lord established the kingdom in his hand. Okay, so it starts out by talking about his, his national defense policy, right? How he builds up the border with Israel because his father had expanded the kingdom into some Israelite territory and he wants to defend that because Israel's getting stronger and he wants to protect himself. And isn't this at least the prelude to the kind of stuff that we read Kings and Chronicles for? Right? Like if these are your favorite books, it's because you like the wars and the battles and the palace intrigue and those, those exciting, compelling stories. So this is, this is right along the lines of the things we like to hear about. Right? And then it gets even more exciting because the next thing he does, in the third year of his reign, Jehoshaphat sent his officials, Benhael, Obadiah, Zechariah, Nethanel, and Micaiah, to teach the cities of Judah. The Levites with them were Shemaiah, Nethaniah, Zebediah, Asahel, Shemaramoth, Jehonathan, Adonijah, Tobijah, and Tob Adonijah. The priests, Elishema and Jehoram, were with those Levites. They taught throughout Judah, having the book of the Lord's instruction with them. They went throughout the towns of Judah and taught the people. So we start out with Jehoshaphat's national defense policy. And then we move into his domestic education policy. One of these things is more exciting than the others, right? One of these things is more interesting. But one of them is also more unique and remarkable than the other, and it's the education program. Now, why would Jehoshaphat be sending out people to teach the law to all of the people of Judah? Well, if you remember, Judah has a special relationship with God where he has given them this law that they are meant to carry out. And in carrying out this law written by God, they will create a God-shaped culture, a God-shaped community that the other nations will see and be a part of. And one of the things that God reminded them of when he gave them a king was that having a king doesn't get you off the hook. Every citizen of Israel is responsible for their role in, a, in living out the design of God. And so, evidently, here I'm assuming, but it makes the most sense that Jehoshaphat recognizes that he needs to get every person educated in the law. They all need to know the will of God because it's not enough just for the king to follow God. The, The people have to as well. One of the major problems that kings get into is that they they feel the need to appeal to their own people. And if their people are not educated in the word of God, then appealing to the people means appealing to something other than what God's been teaching because the people don't know what God wants. And so that's one of the problems with leadership, that balance of being responsive to the people, but also teaching the people what they need to be looking for, what they need to be seeking, right? And so Jehoshaphat is the first king that actually has this public education program of teaching people the law. And so... In his opening policy, he has these two things that he's doing that are kind of parallel, these two approaches to solving the challenges of his kingdom. On the one hand, he built up Judah's defenses, and on the other hand, he built up their devotion to God. Now, those may seem completely unrelated, but if you're a king of Judah and you've paid attention to the law of Moses, you recognize that those are not unrelated. And you see this very quickly because... In the next verse, Chronicles tells us how 
his, how Jehoshaphat's neighbors responded to Israel or to Judah, and notice what they're reacting to. It says, the fear of the Lord fell on all the kingdoms of the land surrounding Judah so that they did not go to war against Jehoshaphat. Some Philistines brought Jehoshaphat gifts and silver as tribute, and the Arabs brought him flocks, 7,700 rams and 7,700 goats. Notice, it's not the fear of Jehoshaphat. It's not the fear of Jehoshaphat's armies or his walls or his fortifications. It's the fear of the Lord. Now, why would they be especially fearful of the Lord? Or especially, that word fear can also mean respect, like, the analogy that I've heard that's good is like uh, uh, fear of electricity. Like it doesn't mean you're constantly afraid of electricity, but you're not going to go shoving your finger in a socket because you know it's dangerous. It's valuable, it's helpful, it's also dangerous, so you respect it, right? Same kind of attitude here. But why are they especially fearful of the Lord here? God hasn't done any miraculous victories in a while. So why are they fearful? They're fearful not because God has done anything recently, but because Judah has gotten closer to Yahweh recently. See, you only really have to be afraid of Yahweh if you're one of the neighboring kingdoms if Israel is on good terms with him. If Israel is on, or Judah is on bad terms with Yahweh, you don't got to worry about Yahweh because he's not going to help them. Right? In fact, he might actually be using you to punish them because they are not faithful. So what's happening, in a way, if you grew up with siblings, like Judah's hiding behind mom. Right? Like Judah is close with Yahweh. Like, okay, when they're close with Yahweh, we can't touch them because they respect Yahweh. They respect the God of Israel. So between the fortifications and, the, and teaching people to obey God, the one that actually intimidates their neighbors and creates peace is how close they are with their God. So Judah experienced peace because of their devotion which is surprising, you would think that peace comes at the point of a sword or from hiding behind big walls. So Jehoshaphat, like his father, has a really good start. Then Jehoshaphat makes a very, very poor choice that will have very bad consequences for several generations because he's got, he's got a wealthy kingdom now. He's, he's got a prosperous kingdom, but it's not as prosperous or as powerful as his northern neighbor. And Jehoshaphat, I don't know, maybe he was also just an idealist and he wanted to create peace where there had been war in the past. I don't know what his motivation was, but whatever the motivation was, it drove him to make a bad decision. Jehoshaphat had riches and honor and abundance, and he made an alliance with Ahab through marriage. Okay, so Jehoshaphat marries his son Jehoram to Ahab's daughter Athaliah, okay? Which is not technically wrong based on the laws that we had talked about before because these are all Israelites, right? They're allowed to marry other Israelites. Although, if you want to marry an Israelite, Ahab's family may not be the best choice because this is what the book of Kings tells us about King Ahab. Ahab, son of Omri, did what was evil in the Lord's sight more than all who were before him. He married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and then proceeded to serve Baal and bow in worship to him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he had built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole. Ahab did more to anger the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Ahab is like the uh, inverse of Solomon. Because um, Omri built the kingdom, Ahab took over and built it up and built a temple, but he built it to Baal instead of God. So uh, 
as, as wise as Solomon was, Ahab is evil and unwise and worshiping other gods, right? So this is the family that Jehoshaphat marries the line of David into for the sake of this alliance. And apparently Jehoshaphat is, he's naive or gullible or something. Maybe because he keeps making, he has a blind spot for Ahab and Ahab's son later. Because he goes up to visit Ahab um, and after some years and Ahab slaughters a whole bunch of animals and he persuaded Jehoshaphat to attack Ramoth Gilead. For Israel's king Ahab asked king Je- Judah's king Jehoshaphat, will you go with me to Ramoth Gilead? And he replied to him, I am as you are, my people as your people, we will go with you into battle. And he decides, yeah, not, we're allies, we're in-laws, and we're gonna, we'll go to war whenever you go to war. That's the kind of alliance that he builds with a person like Ahab. So he saw security through a military alliance, and as we'll find, it almost killed him. Because first foolish decision, marry into Ahab's family. Second foolish decision, go to war when Ahab tells you go to war. Third foolish decision, when Ahab makes a really weird suggestion, he goes along with it. So the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and go into battle, but you wear your royal attire. So the king of Israel disguised himself and they went into battle. Does that sound like a normal request to you? Anybody feel like something fishy might be going on? Right? If, the, if you're going into battle with another king and the king says, I'm going to go in disguise, but you put on your best duds. Now, we don't know exactly what Ahab knew at the time, but it seems very likely the way the story is told that Ahab knew the very next thing that we're told in the story, which is that the king of Aram had ordered his chariot commanders, do not fight with anyone at all except the king of Israel. So who are they going to think Jehoshaphat is? The king of Israel. Now, Ahab is explicitly trying to evade a um, prophecy that God has given that he's going to die. So he's actually trying to get the prophecy to fall on Jehoshaphat because God is like susceptible to those kind of hijinks, I guess, is his thought. But instead, when the chariot commanders saw Jehoshaphat, they shouted, he must be the king of Israel. So they turned to attack him, but Jehoshaphat cried out and the Lord helped him. God drew them away from him. And then some random arrow hits Ahab in the back and he dies like God said he would even though he was in disguise. So you can't actually pull, pull one over on God that easily. But Jehoshaphat has gone into a bad war and almost gets himself killed because he has this blind spot for Ahab. He's like, sure, you can, you can trust that you know, any king of God's people is going to be on the up and up, right? I don't know if that was his reasoning, but whatever it was, it was bad, and it almost killed him. Now, here's the test, because Jehoshaphat's dad did something unwise, And when he came home, he was confronted by a prophet who called him out on it. And Azza doubled down. He threw the prophet in jail and he said, and he just stuck with that policy. After 35 years of faithfulness, he made one mistake and he just stuck with it. Maybe he was unwilling to admit it was a mistake, but he just stuck with that policy for the next six years of his life. And he ended up dying from athlete's foot or some foot malady that God would have cured him for, but he didn't ask for help. Right, so not a good end. And the question is, how is Jehoshaphat going to react? Because now a prophet is going to confront him. King Jehoshaphat of Judah returned to his home in Jerusalem in peace. Then Jehu, son of the seer Hanani, went out to confront him and said to King Jehoshaphat, Do you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Because of this, the Lord's wrath is on you. However, some good is found in you, for you have eradicated the Asherah poles from the land and have determined in your heart to seek God. So 
that was the wrong move and that provoked God's wrath, but there's still a chance for you. Now, if Jehoshaphat follows his dad's example, he's about to make a very bad choice. But Jehoshaphat, the difference that makes him the faithful king where his father was the unfaithful king is that he makes the right decision. Jehoshaphat lived in Jerusalem, and once again, he went out among the people from Beersheba to the hill country of Ephraim and brought them back to the Lord, the God of their ancestors. He appointed judges in all the fortified cities of the land of Judah, city by city. Then he said to the judges, consider what you are doing, for you do not judge for a man, but for the Lord who is with you in the matter of judgment. And now may the terror of the Lord be on you. Watch what you do, for there is no injustice or partiality or taking of bribes with the Lord our God. Jehoshaphat also appointed in Jerusalem some of the Levites and priests and some of the Israelite family heads for deciding the Lord's will and for settling disputes of the residents of Jerusalem. This is where we ought to really admire Jehoshaphat because he gets confronted with a major mistake and instead of a prideful reaction, he goes home and he refocuses on the basics. Evidently, while he was off gallivanting, um, worship of idols had rekindled, and so he goes out and he pulls the people back and reminds them to only worship Yahweh. And then, apparently, there's also been problems in their justice system. And so he sends out new judges, and he appoints people of integrity, and he teaches them what integrity means, and he holds them to that, to, to make judgments that honor God, and to remember that they are judging on God's behalf, not on the behalf of people. And so he, he goes back to the basics of, is my kingdom a godly kingdom? I don't know what his, the Bible does not tell us very often what's going on in somebody's head. It seems to me, what I would read into this, um, or project into it, however you want to look at it. It seems to me like Jehoshaphat recognizes things got off track. I'm going to go back to the basics, and I'm going to build it back up again the right way. I'm going to focus on the essentials, on, on the day-to-day stuff. So Jehoshaphat re- rededicated himself to serving God with integrity. And again, this is the first time that we really see a king doing this, where he gets gets involved in the appointing of judges. Solomon did this, but Solomon actually just redistricted everything to give him better control and more slave labor. But Jehoshaphat specifically does this to make sure that the judges are being more godly, are being more fair and being more just, which is his responsibility. And after this, Jehoshaphat faces one more challenge. He's going to face the same thing that defeated his father, one more time. It says, after this, the Moabites, the Ammonites, together with some of the Menuhites, came to fight against Jehoshaphat. People came and told Jehoshaphat, a vast number from beyond the Dead Sea and from Edom have come to fight against you. They are already in Hazanon Tamar. That is, En Gedi. You know, En Gedi, right? Um, Jehoshaphat was afraid, and he resolved to seek the Lord. This is where everything is different. His father, after 35 years of faithfulness, resolved to seek an alliance, and he pawned the temple treasure to do that. Jehoshaphat proclaimed a fast for all Judah, and Judah responded by gathering to seek the Lord. They even came from all the cities of Judah to seek him. So not only is Jehoshaphat involved in this and, taking th- and approaching it the right way, but all of Judah is participating the same way. They're going along with him. 
Sometimes as a leader, when you want to do things the right way, that can be when you, when you find the most resistance, right? Especially when you're leading just a, a nation, you want to do things the, the right but hard way, that can be what gets people's hackles up. And yet in this case, Judah goes with him. They're on board. In the middle of the congregation, the spirit of the Lord came on Jehaziel and he said, this is what the Lord says. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast number for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow go down against them. You will see them coming up the ascent of Ziz and you will find them at the end of the valley facing the wilderness of Jeruel. You do not have to fight this battle. Position yourselves, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. He is with you, Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid or discouraged. Tomorrow go out to face them, for the Lord is with you. So notice when they go to God, God responds by saying, I am going to fight this battle for you. Now, most of the time when God fights their battle for them, he fights with them, right? Like they go into battle, but they just win when they didn't have the right numbers. But here he says, you're not even gonna have to do anything. I've got this one completely. And so in the morning, when they got up early and went out to the wilderness of Tekoa, they were about to go out and Jehoshaphat stood and said, hear me, Judah, and you inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God and you will be established. Believe in his prophets and you will succeed. Then he consulted with the people and appointed them to sing for the Lord and, to, and some to praise the splendor of his holiness. When they went out in, in front of the armed forces, they kept singing, give thanks to the Lord for his faithful love endures forever. So what you should be visualizing is an army being led by the worship team. And the idea that the worship team is the most important part of this assembly. Right? He doesn't tell us how many soldiers they have. He doesn't tell us how many chariots they have. But he tells us what the worship team was singing. Because that's what was important. So when Judah was invaded, Jehoshaphat and Judah turned to God rather than to armies. It doesn't mean they didn't have an army. It doesn't mean they didn't send their army, but they relied on God, right? And this is what sets him apart. So what happened? It says, the moment they began their shouts and praises, the Lord set an ambush against the Ammonites, Moabites, and the inhabitants of Mount Seir who came to fight against Judah, and they were defeated. So how does God set an ambush? It says the Ammonites and Moabites turned against the inhabitants of Mount Seir and completely annihilated them. When they had finished with the inhabitants of Seir, they helped destroy each other. So they had a three-way alliance and it broke down. So two of them annihilated the third one and then the two left couldn't get along. So they fought each other and they all just killed each other. Just this alliance imploded on itself before they even got to Jerusalem. When Judah came to the place overlooking the wilderness, they looked for the large army, but there were only corpses lying on the ground. Nobody had escaped. So, what we ought to be tracking with Jehoshaphat's career is that he has been following two policies from the beginning. He's had his national defense policy, and he's had his domestic um, education and justice policies. He's been looking at how do we defend ourselves with our army, and how do we build up a righteous citizenry who follows God. And when he relies on the national defense, things go poorly. But this confrontation, in this case, Jehoshaphat and all of the people with him go into battle the way God has told them they should. 
And it's ultimately none of his military defenses matter. They don't so much as pull a sword out of a sheath, right? Jehoshaphat prevailed because of Judah's faithfulness, not their strength. So in the end, what were Jehoshaphat's most important accomplishments? I wonder whether Jehoshaphat fancied himself to be a great warrior. Maybe he wanted to be a David-like warrior king, and maybe that's part of what tempted him into going to battle with Ahab. But Jehoshaphat fought one battle in his life, and he lost. And yet, he was one of the greatest kings that the people of Israel ever had, and it was because of his education policy. It was because of the way he built up their justice system. It was because of the boring stuff. The boring, everyday minutia of ruling that never makes it into the movies. That's his strength. Is in that everyday faithfulness to the mission of God. And so many other kings, even the great godly kings, end up neglecting that daily discipline of teaching righteousness and faithfulness to the people. One of the constant refrains of Kings and Chronicles is, this king did great things, but he didn't stop the idol worship. This king did great things, but he left the Baal, the Baal idols and the Asherah poles. This king did great things, but he didn't tear down the high places. And actually, even Jehoshaphat leaves some of the high places up. But that's because that's the hard work of getting the people of Judah and the people of Israel in line with God's design. That's much harder and more thankless and less dramatic than winning battles. And these kings would much rather have won dramatic battles than really invest in the daily minutia of being faithful kings of God's people. And as we turn from the story of Jehoshaphat to looking at our place in the kingdom of heaven, that's what I want us to remember because the same thing applies to our own lives and our own journeys. We live in a culture that tells us that we are the main characters. I am the main character of the story. And so I expect to have dramatic things happen where I'm the hero and the victor and it will be fulfilling to my self-image, right? I'll get to be as heroic as the people in the movies. Well, they don't make movies about day-to-day faithfulness because it's boring, right? How many, we just watched, uh, we've, Casey and I have watched a couple musician biopics recently. And you know what? Hard, they hardly ever show them playing chords and, and scales and practicing guitar, right? Even though it's that practice and that training that actually makes them great musicians. But we get to find, all, find out all about their drinking and their, their great concerts and all that kind of stuff, right? Very little... Uh, footage of working on scales, right? The thing is that faithfulness to God is the result of discipline, devotion, and diligence. There's your three words that start with the same letter. (laughs) Discipline, devotion, and diligence. Oftentimes we think because Christianity is a matter of having a relationship with God, that that means there's no, there's no discipline, devotion, or diligence in it. But I'll tell you that every healthy relationship requires discipline, devotion, and diligence. And with God, it is no different. And Scripture backs that up. One of the people that you'd expect to be like, the, if there's a shoe-in, if there are any shoe-ins for getting into heaven, I would think the Apostle Paul would be close, right? Like he'd be toward the front of the line. 
getting in, right? And Paul says, don't you know that the runners in a stadium all race, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way to win the prize. Now, everyone who competes exercises self-control in everything. They do it to receive a perishable crown, but we an imperishable crown. So I do not run like one who runs aimlessly or box like one beating the air. Instead, I discipline my body and bring it under strict control so that after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Paul says, for all the preaching that I do, if I do not discipline myself, I'm not going to get the prize. Because it's not a matter of being a great preacher or even of writing scripture. It's a matter of the discipline that makes us into godly people. That's what it's going to come down to. This is also what Paul is getting at when he talks about the armor of God. If you're familiar with the passage where Paul talks about the armor that we use to defend ourselves in, uh, in our spiritual walk, he says, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. For this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having prepared everything to take your stand. That armor that he's talking about was heavy. If you weren't wearing it when the, when the enemy stormed into camp, you weren't going to wear it, right? It takes, you need help to put it on. So you have to be prepared for battle. And that's his whole emphasis. He's saying, you don't know when the battle's going to be, so you need to be preparing for it now. I don't know about you, but I will often find myself in the middle of a spiritual challenge and wonder why, like, why isn't my prayer life healthier? Why can't I pray the way I need to for this situation? Well, I wasn't praying very much before this situation happened. I wasn't ready for it. It's like having not trained for a marathon. I shouldn't expect for it to go well, right? And so Paul is saying, you need to put on your armor now. And he's talking about things like speaking the truth, your righteousness, ready to, being ready to spread the gospel, being faithful. He's talking about your salvation. He's talking about knowing the word of God and he's talking about prayer. These are things that you need to be training with now so that you'll be ready when those confrontations happen. Because you will be able to handle, like your ability to handle those crisis moments will depend on your preparation. Now, God can can handle his end no matter what. But your end, your responsibility, your part of that will depend on your preparation. And I don't know about you, but I am tempted to think, eh, I'll wing it. You know, I, I don't actually think ahead. I don't think about the fact that, like, oh, I don't have that much to pray about right now. Yeah, but I'm not praying just for now. I'm learning to pray now so that I can pray when things are in crisis. I may not have any big questions that I'm dealing with right now, so maybe I don't need to be in God's word to discern some issue that I'm facing now. But sometime I will have to make a decision and I won't have time to go skim the letters of Paul to find out what he tells me about how to deal with that. So if faithfulness is a matter of discipline and devotion and diligence, then what that tells us is that the battle we face is one in everyday obedience, not dramatic confrontations. The greatest king of Judah never won a single battle in his life, but he was the most diligent at making sure that his people knew the law, knew the nature of their relationship with God, and who made sure that his, that his people were being ruled over justly. 
He is the greatest king of Judah. Even though there's very little dramatic material in his story. This is what Jesus tells us. He says, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will save it. You have to take up your cross daily. You're not going to face the threat of persecution or the face of crucifixion every day, but you have to take up your cross daily. You know who didn't do that? Peter. You know how Peter did when the crisis moment hit? He didn't do well. He denied Jesus. Jesus calls us to take up our cross daily. That means you have a choice each morning. Am I going to pick up my cross? Am I going to do the hard stuff today? Or am I going to leave it there and take it easy? If you remember, we read this passage last week, and it really bears on this week as well. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. I don't know about you, but I have never done anything so dramatic as legit prophesying, driving out demons, or doing obvious miracles. I've never, nothing like that. I feel like I've seen God work through things that I've done, but I've never, never anything big and dramatic like that, right? And yet there will be people who can point to those stories in their lives and God will look at them and say, you didn't obey my father. I don't know who you are. That's what Jesus is getting at, is that it's not a matter of what happens in those dramatic confrontations. One of the things scripture teaches us is that God will give a leader a victory just because he needs his people to win that one, even though the king isn't right with God. Right? Sometimes God does what he needs to to get his plan to move forward, and it's not always bad people fail, good people succeed. So just because you've had some victories, just because you've had some good things happen, doesn't mean that you are good with God. What God wants from you, he doesn't need people who can win big battles for him. He's got the battles covered. What he needs is people who do the daily work of obedience. And you know who I'm preaching to right now? I'm always preaching to myself, but especially right now, I am someone who will focus on the dramatic and ignore the mundane because it's not exciting and compelling and interesting. But that's what it all comes down to. Now that is difficult, and this may not sound super encouraging to you right now, and that's why I want to end with this point that Peter makes, right? Peter, the guy who had that very significant failure that got recorded in scripture for all following generations to hear. He's never going to meet a person in heaven who doesn't know the worst thing he did in his life, right? That's Peter. And he says this. He says that God gives us everything we need to be faithful. He says God gives us everything we need to be faithful. This is in 2 Peter. God's divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and goodness. By these he has given us very great and precious promises so that through them you may share in the divine nature, escaping the corruption that is in the world because of evil desire. God has promised us everything we need to be the people that he calls us to be. 
Well, Peter is about to launch into a list of virtues that he wants his, the people to take on. Faithfulness, goodness, knowledge, self-control, endurance, godliness, brotherly affection, love. A pretty serious, heavy-hitting list of virtues. And he says, God has given you everything that you need to go on that journey of being made more like Christ. In fact, that is, to me, the more relieving part of the good news. Right? If the good news isn't true, then I don't actually have a reason to worry about hell because it's the fact that I believe in Jesus and in God that I think that it matters whether I have a good relationship with him for eternity. But you know what's even better news? Is that God is not going to leave me where he found me. That's what makes me excited about knowing Jesus, is that I don't have to stay the kind of person that I've always been. I don't even have to stay the kind of person I am now. Right? God will continue to give us what we need to change, to be more faithful to him. So if, if you have heard what I've been saying, you're saying, I am not a Jehoshaphat. Like, I am not that, and I don't think I ever can be that. I will tell you that with Jesus Christ, you can be. And the church and this church is full of people who can testify that because of Jesus, I am not who I used to be, and the only way I can explain it is because of Jesus. And when we dedicate ourselves to that faithfulness to God, that's when the words of the prophet said to Judah can be said to us as well. The danger is we claim these words when they don't apply. But when we are seeking, being obedient to God, that's when these words apply to us. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast number, whatever it is that you're facing. For the battle is not yours, but God's. You do not have to fight this battle. Position yourselves, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord. He is with you. That is the promise that we get from Scripture when we are faithful to him and we seek to do his will and be his kind of people. Amen? I'm going to ask the praise team to come up, and I'm going to ask you... What decision is God calling you to make today? Where is God prompting you in your heart to become a closer disciple of him? Maybe you have not made the decision to be a disciple of his. Maybe you haven't decided to follow Jesus. Today is the best day for you to do that. And if that's a decision you want to make, then we encourage you to come down uh, during the song. Come talk to me, or you can talk to us after the service. Maybe you realize that you have given your life to Jesus, but you haven't done a great job of that daily faithfulness. Well, that daily faithfulness, it comes from being daily in relationship with God and being in relationship with God's people because we do this together, right? Judah did that together. Jehoshaphat's job was to oversee how the Judeans, how the Judahites supported each other. And we do that in this church as well. And so you can talk to us, you can grab that green card and join one of our small groups or our classes and finally, we are each called to give back, and maybe you are feeling like you need an opportunity. God is calling you to serve others in some way. That's what that blue card is for. But whatever God is putting on your heart, I ask you to, to act on it today. Do not let this opportunity pass you by to act on the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Amen? So with that in mind, I invite you to stand for our final song. 